There are people sitting in jail right now because they couldn't pay a traffic ticket. The head of the English department was more concerned with not having to have irritating conversations with parents than he was with whether or not any of those kids fucking learned anything. So far this year, there's been just over one school shooting per week in this country, and an alarming number of them are committed using legally obtained, quote-unquote, Second Amendment protected firearms. That's the motivation these days, folks. Yeah. It's not putting well-rounded people who are ready for the adult world into the adult world. It's about, let's make sure we keep getting money. The greatest country on earth shouldn't have people becoming homeless because they lost three months pay during a pandemic. We shouldn't have people living one pink slip away from losing their health insurance. And we sure as shit shouldn't have people dying of treatable illnesses because they can't afford to be made well. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. Welcome to America, the greatest country on earth, where we've had an average of one school shooting per week so far in 2022, and where people die every day because they can't afford medical care. The land of the free, where a full quarter of the world's prisoners are incarcerated. The land of opportunity, where most workers don't make enough to pay the rent, and where the federal government still thinks it's the early 80s in its perception of what the minimum wage should be. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this week, we're going to have a frank, honest, and in-depth conversation about why the United States is far from the greatest anything, and what we can and should do to change a few things around here. But first... Yet another trigger warning for child sexual abuse. We've got a double header of stories about that. And one girl who has some frank words of her own about her own mom and why no one should vote for her. It's Christians Behaving Badly, Suffer the Children edition. Shell, what have you got for us this week? You know, sometimes I feel like I keep talking about the same stories over and over and over again. Every week, it seems like there's at least one of these stories and every week, I just sort of want to haul off and punch someone in the face. Oh, you too, huh? Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> but on the bright side, at least some of these guys are facing some consequences. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. A pastor is going to jail for sexual abuse of a minor for four and a half years after he abused the victim for two years, beginning when she was only 14. <sighs> Jesus. He will also have to register as a sex offender. While I don't think that is nearly enough jail time, at least having to register as a sex offender gives people warning before they hire him. True that. David Walker, who preached at Church Alive International in Cleveland and then at the Dwelling Place Family Worship Center in North Olmsted, pleaded guilty in March to six counts of attempted sexual battery and one count of endangering children in connection with multiple incidents of sexual abuse that investigators said took place from 2003 to 2007. Walker's wife, Anna, pleaded guilty the same day to one count of assault and one count of endangering children after admitting that she participated in one incident of sexual abuse when the girl was 17. Jesus Christ. You got the wife in on it? Yeah, yeah ick. Judge Kilbane sentenced her to one year of probation, 
saying she acted at the behest of her husband. The guy's only defense is that it was a random, innocent accident. A random, innocent accident that went on for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing random about that. And no. certainly not fucking... In- oh, fuck you. Innocent. Yeah, right. Innocent. He Clearly used the word wasn't. innocent. I know. Oh, that just makes my skin crawl thinking about it. Much yeah. less having to read it and say it out loud. Oh, he's creepy. Walker was leading a youth group at a church-sponsored lock-in when the victim ended up sleeping next to him. Ended up sleeping next to him. Mm -hmm. Claiming he believed she was his wife, he began rubbing her and didn't figure out she wasn't his wife until the morning. Bullshit. Yeah, none of that explains why the abuse continued long after that or why several other girls who were teenagers at his church at the time said he was also sexually inappropriate with them. He denied all those other allegations. Because of course he did. It's in his best interest to deny all of it. And, you know, in a lot of these situations, the crazy part is they would drag these people in in front of the church board and gaslight them into thinking that they did something wrong. Of course. And then what happens after that is they apologize to the pastor and life goes on. Yep. That's what happens in a lot of these cases. That's why you hear more about the Catholic Church than you hear about your typical evangelical church. Right. Because there's a lot of gaslighting going on behind the scenes when it comes to, um, and and it goes both ways, Mm -hmm. when it comes to convincing someone that something like this didn't happen. And in some cases, and one in particular that's very close to me, where they put thoughts in your head that things that didn't happen actually happened. So it can go either way. Yeah. And with the same kinds of motivations. That's the really that that's the the real sickening part about this is that for every story that you hear like this one, Mm -hmm. there are hundreds, maybe thousands that just get quashed in church board meetings. Yeah. Where it's decided and where people are convinced that what happened wasn't really all that bad. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um I could tell the difference between my wife and a 14-year-old. Uh, yeah. Even in pitch dark. Uh, yeah. Even if you never said a word or made a sound or moved or anything. Put two women that even look a little bit alike. You get somebody who looks just a little bit like you, who could pass for you just standing right next to you or your sister or something like that. I'm sorry. Put me in a dark room with that person, and I'm going to know it's not you. Yeah. I'm the, Yeah. There's no possible way that this idiot thought that that was his wife. Yeah. No. Oh, oh yeah. No. Right. Sorry. No. <laughs> the defense also tried to argue that these crimes happened over 20 years ago, and that he should- Who cares? I know. There's I no know. statute of limitation on rape. But they suggested that he only get probation- saying he has health conditions now like sleep apnea and diabetes. Oh, poor baby. And he hasn't done any other crimes, to, so give him a break, right? Uh, gotta be, he hasn't done any other crimes. This is enough. This is enough. This is more than enough. Of course. And, and that sentence was bullshit. Oh, I know, right? That sentence was bullshit. Yeah, the judge isn't having any of that. Judge Ashley Kilbane stated in response to this... All that means is that for 20 years, he's enjoyed life and escaped justice and detection. 
she also wasn't having with the pleas of his Christian followers that he was a good man and a strong Christian, as if those things should excuse molesting children in the basement of their church. But in their minds, it should. Yeah, and it's like, uh, yeah, no, 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 your fruits don't show that. This is what happens when you adhere to a religion where you can do whatever the fuck you want, say I'm sorry, and believe that you've wiped the slate clean. All you have to do is repent. Gonna get the good Lord to forgive a little sin, wipe the slate clean so we can dirty it again. Thank you, Steve Taylor. Sometimes you get it right. Yes. But yeah, this is appalling. But it's not surprising given the way that these people are taught to think. Yeah. As for the victim, she is now in her 30s and said before the sentencing that Walker urged her to become his second wife. He also asked her to continue having sex with him after she got <sighs> married because that Fuck. was God's plan. Of course it was. Back to Susan B. Anthony. You know, God's opinion and ours are always going to be one and the same. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You used your flexible schedule from the pulpit to get your hands in my pants, she said. Are you sorry or are you sorry you got caught? I'm taking option B. Uh, Yeah. Him getting actual jail time for this is pretty good, but the picture of this guy, it's in the Cleveland.com article in the show notes, reacting to his conviction and jail sentence is just perfect. Chef's kiss. (laughs) He looks like the surprised Pikachu meme. So satisfying. He really thought he was going to get away with it. It might not nearly be enough time in jail, but it's at least something. I will grant them that it's something it's a very little something yeah but at least it's something at least there is a consequence here if i was the parent of the victim i'd be pissed but as an outside interested observer at least i'm sitting here thinking well thank the powers that be that they had the good sense to actually exact some consequence on this guy. He couldn't hide behind his religion. He couldn't hide behind the idiotic reasoning for doing this that his religion afforded him. This is the real world. These are real consequences. There's your cell. Yeah. And I think that, and I'll say it again, the sentence is bullshit. But at least it conveys the message that this was not okay. There is at least that. And the sexual offender registry. Yeah. I mean. But here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. When I hire a new instructor, they have to submit to a quarry background check. Right. Okay. I cannot hire somebody if they have that kind of a blight on their record. Right. But churches, being the sovereign bodies that they are, can hire whoever they want to do whatever they want. Right. So there is absolutely nothing absolutely nothing precluding this guy from going to another church and victimizing someone else there or has as many other someone's else as he wants to. And that's the really frightening and disturbing part about it Yeah, is that if he was out there trying to get a quote unquote real job, I won't disparage what pastors do. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, what pastors do and what they go through to get their jobs done. So I'm not going to disparage what they do, but if you were getting a quote unquote real secular job, let's say let's just say secular job, not real right. job. If you're going for a secular job out in society, outside the cloister of your religion, 
there's no possible way that the powers that be would let you anywhere near kids again. But this idiot is going to get another position somewhere yeah. because he's repented and he's reformed. Mm -hmm. And the next time it happens, I hope to fake Jesus that they throw the book at him and put him away for the rest of his life. Because when he gets out, he will reoffend. Oh, yeah. He will reoffend. And if at that point the law doesn't do its job and take him out of society permanently, shame on it. Yeah. Shame on no, it. I agree. And it's going to happen. And it looks like we're going directly from one pedophile scumbag to another this week. Yeah. Let's talk about one of our quote-unquote favorites here. Yeah. And here's another guy who didn't get nearly enough jail time. Josh Duggar was recently sentenced to over 12 years in prison for downloading and possessing images of child sexual abuse. For those of you who don't know the story or don't remember the story... Federal agents had raided Duggar's used car lot in 2019 and confiscated his computers and phone. He actually blurted out during the raid, What is this about? Has anyone been downloading child pornography? Well, we never said anything about child pornography. What, what are you talking about? What do you have to tell us? Smooth, Josh. Mm, very. Real smooth. Very. The feds eventually found that Duggar used a browser that would allow him to download the illicit material from the dark web. Also on his computer, Covenant Eyes, a Christian accountability program that alerts certain people if you look at porn online. Duggar downloaded the content using a workaround that didn't trigger the software, which suggested that the Christian program didn't work and that whoever downloaded the illicit material didn't do it accidentally. No, definitely not. Mm. Eventually, the feds found over 200 illicit images of children and knew that someone had both viewed them and then tried to delete the files. Mm -hmm. While Duggar tried to suggest that someone else had done the downloading, perhaps via a remote link, the jury did not buy this. He was convicted on both counts he was accused of and taken back into custody. The sentencing comes despite his wife and extended family pleading for probation and his lawyers stating that he had lived an exemplary life. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Anybody who's been following this story at all, if you've been on social media at all in the last three years, you, you know just how ridiculous a characterization of him that is exemplary yeah. life this guy is a pig and he deserves to go away for a lot more than 12 years oh yeah definitely but at least his kids have a fighting chance of you know not being around him for a while yeah yeah there is that so now we go from two stories about child sexual abuse to this this really isn't christians behaving badly this is some bigot's daughter behaving quite admirably and, you know, when you reach a point where your own kids mm. are out there literally speaking against you because you're that vile of a human being, let alone a parent, something is wrong. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Lastly tonight, Kelly Stargell, a Florida state senator who is currently running for Congress, is also one of the cruelest and least thoughtful politicians in the country. She has pushed for the 15-week abortion ban, has tried to ban trans girls from playing on the appropriate sports team, and has backed DeSantis' awful COVID policies. 
and one of the loudest voices against electing her to Congress is her own daughter, 28-year-old Hannah Stargell. She is gay and wants to expose her mother as the bigot she is. In her TikTok where she talks about her mother, she says, Considering the fact that Kelly Stargell is my mother and sent me to a troubled teen facility when I was only 15, I don't think that she really has a right to tell you or anybody else who can and can't be a mother because she wasn't even a mother to her own children. Ouch. After numerous years of telling me I was hard to love, putting me through tons of years of neglect, putting politics before everything else, and honestly just being a horrible, horrible person to look up to, is this really somebody you want up in D.C. passing laws for you and your children, telling you what to do with your body? I like this girl. I do too. If I can do anything in my power to make sure that Kelly Stargell does not become a congresswoman from Florida, that would be awesome. Oh my God. Oh, this, I'm just, I'm loving every word of this. I know, right? She says in another interview that she was surprised when she announced her intent to run for Senate as she had planned to step away because of the toll it took on her family. Oh, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Guess that's not as much of a problem as she thought. No, apparently not. And Hannah's not the only daughter who has spoken out against her mother. In 2021, her daughter, Laura Stargell, spoke out against her mother's crusade to throw trans girls off of high school girls' teams. What's really sad is that her daughters aren't asking for much. They just want their mother to be compassionate towards marginalized kids and women who may have become pregnant against their will. But Kelly Stargell refuses to do that because she'd rather kowtow to the Republican base than take her daughters seriously. Hannah said she stopped communicating with her mother after she pushed the anti-trans bill just months after Hannah came out to her. What a wonderful human being. Yeah, she talks a good game about wanting what's best for Florida's families, but I'm sure that those Florida families can go hang unless they share her Christian bigotry. Yeah, that seems to be the kind of prerequisite that she would place on it. And I'll say it again, when you've got not one, but two of your kids publicly speaking out against you, what kind of vile human must you be for that to be happening? It's pretty bad. The problem is that her opinions are shared by a lot of people and a lot of people in her own state. So these two voices crying in the wilderness may or may not have an impact, but anyone who has ears to hear should take a couple of things into consideration here. And if you're a voter in that state make the conscious decision to do what is best in terms of the future of your state and the future of people who identify in ways that are not strictly cishet. Make the right decision here. And, you know, it is right now primary time. I don't know when the primaries are in every state, but it is primary time. So it is time to start thinking about these things. And it's time to start getting educated about these things. Be informed about this. And then make the right decision when you go to that voting booth. And again, go to the fucking voting booth. You need to do that. So before I get too far onto that bandwagon yet again, I want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash network. First tier support on our Patreon is only $5 a month. Comes out to just over a buck an episode. And I believe it would definitely be money well spent for anybody who has it. But if you don't, 
You can help us in every way that we talk about every week. Likes, shares, five-star ratings. Tell new people about this show this week. I was able to introduce the show to someone new this week by simply making a comment on social media and mentioning that I had a show. Didn't even promote anything. Just said that we do this. And there was interest. Oh, well, can you tell me more about that? Well, yes, I absolutely can. <laughs> and, you know, it's it really is just that easy. All you need to do is open up your mouth and talk about us. That is how podcasts grow. It's the number one way podcasts grow. There isn't a single podcast that I listen to that I didn't learn about by word of mouth. So tell someone new, tell as many new people as you can about the show this week and do consider helping us out financially if you can. And we thank you in advance for at least considering doing so. I'm going to keep it nice and short tonight because I really feel like this is a topic that we want to dive into and spend some time on. But just before we get into that, I want to let you know next week we are going to be tackling the question, what is patriotism? And this is just a working title, but I like it. I'm probably going to stick with it. How the right gets it wrong. And we're going to be talking about right-wing politics. We're going to be talking about white evangelicalism and all the ways that people misinterpret patriotism and how those misinterpretations actually are a detriment to society. That's next week. Two weeks from now, you know, I feel like we should have done this one a while ago. Yeah. I feel like we should have done this one on the heels of our Bible college episodes, but it just really wasn't in my head. This is going to be one that if you know anyone at all who is thinking about going into the ministry, this is going to be an episode that you need to share with them. It's coming out over the summer. If they're going to Bible college in the fall, we could probably save them from that. Just by exposing them to the content in this episode. Working title, So You Want to Be a Pastor? Here's what you can expect. And uh, spoiler alert, there aren't a whole lot of positives here. No. We know firsthand what goes on out there, what they tell you in Bible college is going to happen when you graduate, and then what actually happens when you graduate, and things have not changed much in the 30 years since we walked away from Valley Farce. It's pretty much the same out there, and we're going to give you the straight shit on why this is a bad idea. Episode, I think it's five and six, were the Bible college episodes. Yeah. So, so. you know, they're, they're good companion pieces to this. Just kind of shove this content in front of anyone that you know that's thinking about going to Bible college who thinks that they have a calling on their life. This is going to be an episode that you're going to want to share with them. Um, three weeks from now, oh my goodness, it's time for road tests again. And we're going to be taking a week off. And the week after that, we're coming back for Fourth of July weekend without an America bashing episode because we're taking care of that in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> but uh, I figure something fun, lighthearted, that's just going to be fun to listen to would be good for 4th of July weekend. So we will be back with our review of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, the chapter in the Star Trek saga that attempts to answer the question, what does God need with a starship? Hmm. And that one scene I think is worthy of being taken apart and discussed, but there's a lot more movie there and we're going to go through it just like we always do scene by scene, line by line, just go through everything that happens in the movie and relate it back to what we talk about here. So that's going to be 4th of July weekend. So we got things planned out pretty yeah. far ahead at this point and we're really looking forward to producing this content and getting it to you. So if you think that what you're hearing right now is going to be a benefit to someone out there, one last appeal to just share the ever-loving shit out of it and let people know that we're here 
and put them in front of messaging that could change their lives. I don't know if Star Trek V is going to change anybody's life, but <laughs> um, but the episode on you know why you shouldn't go into the ministry, mm. I think that could have an impact on a lot of people. With that, I think it's time to uh, to switch gears and get into tonight's discussion on the sad truth of why America just flat out isn't the greatest country on earth. So the instant I thought about this topic, my mind went directly to Will McAvoy's rant in the 2012 HBO series, The Newsroom. And the series starts out with this conversation where Will McAvoy, played by Jeff Daniels, is boxed into a corner with the question of why is America the greatest country on earth? And I'm pretty sure that he blindsided everyone on that stage and this poor girl who posed the question because it was kind of like the, they, were, they were college students yeah. and it was a forum where they were being allowed to ask questions. So this girl asked the question and, you know, you, you get these pie in the sky, highfalutin answers from the other people on the stage. And when it comes around to Will McAvoy, here comes the truth, whether you like it or not. And it's one of those things I, I tell people all the time when you're dealing with me, if you don't want my opinion, don't fucking ask for it. Mm -hmm. Because the instant you do, you're going to get it and you may not like it. So this guy, I think, thinks a lot like I do when it comes to things like this. And, you know, I, I remember seeing this not really back in the day, but, you know, a couple of years after it came out. I remember seeing this and thinking to myself, oh, my God, we really are screwed, aren't we? <laughs> well, guess what? This was 10 years ago. This was 2012. And I'm going to read you just a small excerpt from what he says in response to the question of why is America the greatest country on earth? First, he blurts out that it's not and goes into a little bit of a tirade wherein he has this to say. He says, we're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories, the number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. So tonight, I want to take the time to address some of these things and how they look 10 years later in the year 2022. And here's the thing. A lot of it looks the same. Yeah. A lot of it really does look the same. They didn't embellish much here. I, I found a few disparities that we're going to talk about as we go, but they really didn't embellish much. This is reasonably accurate if you go strictly by what is happening today, because the same things are reflected in society right now. Let's start with the subject of literacy. Now, I am subjected to this one mm. pretty much on a daily basis, and it's one of the reasons why I'm not an English teacher today. And I'll get into a few more minor details about that in a few minutes, but you know, I, I just started brainstorming a few um, a few bullet points here based on what I found in, in my research for this. People's verbal skills are on the decline, and that is putting it lightly. Mm -hmm. There are times when I know, I absolutely know, sitting there in that car next to 16-year-olds, 
that I have to dumb down what I am saying considerably so these people can understand. I mean, just to give you an example, I learned this part way back in 2009 when I was a fledgling driving instructor. I remember giving a student the instruction, okay, now take the next left. Well, what did the student do? The student bypassed the left turn that he was supposed to take and started looking for the next left. So when he passed the street, I'm like, why didn't we make the turn? He said, well, you said the next left. I said, that was the next left. He's like, no, it wasn't. It's like, well, how do you interpret what the next left is? It was the next one up. That was where I wanted you to turn. And my vocabulary in the car changed almost instantly because I learned from that experience that I can't tell the student to take the next left. They don't understand what that means. I have to say, take the left coming up or something similar, yeah. you know, or take this left coming up. I can't say take the next left because they just cannot, um, they can't think, and is the word abstractly here? They can't think on the level that allows them to understand that next in this context means the next one, not I have to skip this one and take the next one. And, th and there are so many examples of this. You know, I've, uh, I've learned over time how to give instructions in a way that most students are going to be able to understand. But when I first started with this job, I apparently had a tendency to talk over their heads a lot and had to learn how to, I'm, I'm sorry, pardon the term, but dumb it down to the point where I was able to get them to do things in the timely way that you need them to do things in a moving vehicle. Mm -hmm. So yeah, verbal skills, to say that verbal skills are on the decline is an understatement. It really is. And along the same lines, my next bullet point is that our vocabularies are shrinking like shrinky dinks. And they are. And that's not just the kids. That's not just the people who sit in that car next to me in the driver's seat. I've also learned as an owner and the one who communicates with the parents that you have to be like so specific with the things that you tell people or they're just not going to understand it. They're going to email you back with questions that are answered right there in the email. These are things that anyone my age or older would be able to pick up on. Well, I'm past the point now where these students' parents are my age. They're anywhere from 5 to 15 years younger than me at this point. And the shift in the way people have learned things over time is becoming more and more and more apparent. And vocabulary, use of words, understanding, comprehension of words is a thing that is falling by the way in this country in a major way. People who graduated high school just 10 years after I did are having major problems in this area, and it has just gotten worse since. The last thing that I gleaned from several of the articles that I read in preparation for this is that most high schoolers have such low reading proficiency skills. Many states that use standardized tests to determine whether or not students graduate have had to drastically lower the bar in areas like vocabulary and reading comprehension just to ensure that students actually do graduate and that they keep getting funded at the same levels. Mm. 
That's the motivation these days, folks. Yeah. It's not educating kids. It's not putting well-rounded people who are ready for the adult world out there into the adult world. It's about let's make sure we keep getting money. And just another quick little aside about that one. I spent a bunch of years as a substitute teacher. It started around 2006 and went until about 2000, I want to say 2014 or 2015, somewhere in that yeah, neighborhood. Somewhere. And in that time, I wound up doing a couple of long-term subbing contracts where I was teaching English 9. On one notable occasion, I remember being called in to speak with the department head at one of our local high schools. A bunch of students had failed a vocabulary test. I mean, when I say failed, I mean failed with grades like 20, 30, 40, and 50, all right? Some of the grades were as low as 20%. Anything that was somewhere in the 50s, high 50s, or close to 60, I was told that I needed to give them passing grades. It's like, but they didn't pass. Not by any stretch of anyone's imagination did these people pass. Why am I bumping them to 65? And here's the answer that I got. Because if we don't, it will generate phone calls. <laughs> the head of the English department at this high school was more concerned with not having to have irritating conversations with parents than he was with whether or not any of those kids fucking learned anything. Yeah. I think that more than anything else was what sealed the deal for me in terms of not wanting to do that for a living. In 2011, I took my MTELs, the Massachusetts Tests for Educator Licensure. I took the three initial tests for that and ranked in the top 1% in the state on two of them. So I would have been good at this, but here's the problem. Teachers in America, and it's not, this is not a Massachusetts thing. This no. is an America thing. Teachers in America are not allowed to teach anymore. And I'll get into a little bit more detail about that in a little while, too. But what it boiled down to was that if I had to make the choice between doing that and doing what I'm doing right now, I know, I know that I'm doing more for society with what I'm doing now than I ever did teaching ninth graders Romeo and Juliet, okay? Yeah. And when I say teaching them, I use the term incredibly loosely. And again, I'll tell you why in a few minutes. So... According to Will McAvoy, America in 2012 ranked number seven in literacy. Ten years later, those numbers have dropped to ninth when using some very specific criteria. In the study used to collect this data, though, literacy has a very thin definition. If you can read a simple sentence without foreknowledge of what you're being asked to read, you are considered literate. The problem is that the criteria that they use assumes an elementary school reading level doesn't address reading comprehension, doesn't ask the subject to come up with a single synonym or define just one part of speech in the sentence. If you can read the cat set on the mat, you're considered literate. Here's the problem. My very first foray into anything education-related happened completely by accident. I was approached by someone in our church at the time who had read a couple of things that I had written for the church newsletter. And to this day, I can't even remember what I wrote for them, but I had written a couple of small pieces for the church newsletter. And it got this person's attention. One Sunday, she approached me and said, I have an immediate need for someone to fill an adjunct faculty position at this college where she was one of the deans. 
And she's like, like you strike me as someone who has um, a pretty good knowledge of English composition. And we need someone who can teach this rudimentary English course to incoming freshmen. This was a course that was simply titled English 100. And it was an English composition course that was designed for students who were entering their freshman year of college, but either scored low on the verbal portion of their SAT or just wrote really, really horrendously bad essays for their college applications. So before they would put them in English 101, they needed someone who could teach them things like parts of speech, how to construct a sentence, how to construct a paragraph, then an essay, and then a term paper. And we had a semester to get this done. So I, I was intrigued, but not overly enthusiastic about it at the beginning. And I said, you know what? It's something that I'll definitely consider. How long do I have? She said class starts Tuesday. This was Sunday, okay? <laughs> so, you know, me having the savior complex that I have and had to the nth degree back then too, I knew that I could help these people. And I said, okay, so what happens next? And it just moved along so goddamn fast at that point. I went home that day and wrote out my syllabus. I had to go online to figure out how to organize a syllabus. I had to actually learn how to do this and then do it in a matter of a few hours. Yeah. I had to go in the following day and adopt my textbook and make sure that the school uh, bookstore had them so that the students could get them. All, all this stuff happened literally within 48 hours. So it's Sunday afternoon. By Tuesday morning, not even 48 hours later, there I am standing in front of a classroom at this local college and teaching this class. And what I discovered was it was alarming, okay? I put them through the same exercise that I was put through in fifth grade. The teacher put a two-word sentence up on the board. And all we needed to do was identify the subject of the sentence. You have a one in two chance of getting this right. And almost no one in the class did. Here's the sentence. Dave sneezes. I can remember this from fifth grade like it was yesterday. <laughs> and I posed the question to them. So what is the subject of this sentence? An alarming number of them thought that it was the sneeze. It's like, no. The subject is what performs the action. So if Dave is the one sneezing, then what's the subject? And it still didn't penetrate the gray matter with some of them. That's a two-word sentence. So I knew, I knew at that moment that I really had my work cut out for me. And there are a lot of stories that I could tell about that 10 weeks of my life, but we're going to fast forward right to the end. We had 13 people in that class, 10 of them passed. 10 of them walked away from there, at least having a rudimentary knowledge of how to construct a term paper and all of the things that lead up to it. So mission accomplished, you know, I, I, it stroked my savior complex really, really well because I was able to, uh, to salvage a few people's uh, college educations out of the deal. But uh, it really, it was the first canary in the coal mine for me about what our education system was like. The problem was that I also caught the bug for teaching at that point. Yeah. And that was what got me involved with subbing and and even looking into getting my master's in education 
taking those all important MTELs so that I could get a real teaching job. All of that was, uh, was, was a byproduct of that first experience. But I had gotten so many red flags thrown up directly in my face in the years following that there were a few very specific things that happened that told me, no, this is not something that I want to do with my time, with my life. It's a waste of time. You're not teaching anybody anything. You need to figure out something else. And the something else at that point, I had started Driver's Ed in 2009, but you know, I, you know, it was an on-again, off-again thing for a while. What really drew me back to it was my last experience as a sub, the last time that I did one of those, um, those long-term deals. And it was during that stint that I had that conversation with the department head about not generating phone calls. So when that contract ended, I saw an ad for the driving school that I then spent half of my driving instructor career working for, and the rest was history. So, you know, and there have been other stops along the way. You guys know where some of those stops have been and some of the things that I've done since, but I'm back to my roots. This, what I'm doing right now is, as far as I can tell, the best way for me, for me anyway, to get education done. It's real education. This is stuff that they are learning in real time. And I'm not handing them a packet and having them learn it themselves. You cannot hand a student a packet that teaches them how to drive and then put them behind the wheel and say, okay, now demonstrate what you learned. Right. That's not the way that it's done. But that's the way that a lot of American high school classes are organized. The teacher doesn't do a whole lot of actual teaching. They hand out packets. The students teach themselves. The teacher is then charged with the responsibility of spotting mistakes in their understanding, fine-tuning their understanding of things, and getting them to a point where they can answer questions on a standardized test. And that is mostly where it begins and ends. And if enough students in that school do well on the standardized test, they keep getting the same amount of money. If they do better from one year to the next, maybe they get a little bit more money. But all anyone cares about anymore are those fucking tests. Yeah. They don't care about teaching people how to think critically and rationally. They don't care about providing them with the tools that they need to learn how to think. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes too. So with that in mind, let's look at how we're really doing in terms of how we deal with things like literacy. For starters, when you expand the term literate to mean the ability to read and write on a level that allows you to function in society, not just that you can read the cat set on the mat, we get a much different and frankly quite scary story of what's really going on here. The United States is part of an organization called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD. It is made up of 35 countries, most of which are from Europe. The organization compiles data from nations across the globe, not just its own members. The most recent survey found that the U.S. is not seventh in literacy. When you look at the big picture, we are 125th. There are 124 countries with literacy rates, legitimate literacy rates, that are higher than ours. So why are things so bad here? So according to the latest OECD report, the United States was one of only five countries in the organization to cut education funding in the years leading up to their study. 
We spend more money per student than a lot of countries, but I've seen what happens in a high school ELA classroom recently, and I can tell you this one thing for certain. Education in the American classroom is a thing of the past, and here is why. For starters, we pay our teachers shit, and that's just the way it is. For what they do, for what they're put through, for all of the things that they are responsible for getting together on their own to do their job, they are paid shit. What we do instead is we pay very small groups of competent teachers with advanced degrees to write all of the curricula that everyone else follows. Once an education rubric is established, the curriculum is adopted by the school district and teachers are required to stick to it. There is very little that the local teacher actually brings to the table at that point. We then turn around and hand out passing grades to students who can't read well or compose a simple five-paragraph essay because, if we don't, it'll generate phone calls. And it could also result in a loss of funding. So think about that. If the average school district admits to the problems that exist, the government doesn't give them more money to help more students get IEPs or 504 status. They punish the schools for not seeing to it that their teachers properly deliver the information in the rubric. Because, of course, all students learn the same and should be able to follow the same curriculum. And that brings us to the next point. Where the United States starts to fall behind is how much knowledge students gain from their education. According to the Program for International Student Assessment, 15-year-olds in the U.S. ranked 31st out of 35 OECD countries in standardized tests. 31 out of 35. Without a solid foundation of literacy skills, students are being set up to fail in all other areas of their education. With a lack of educational programs that work for every individual student, professional training and development that really is a joke in most instances, and the decline of available resources available to students who struggle in basic literacy skills, some students are flat out never given a fair chance at getting an education that works for them. When they bomb their vocab quiz, they either get to take it again or they're just floated a pass at the end of the quarter. No one bothers to teach most of them how to read or write better. Oh, sure, there's the token resource center or peer tutoring programs in some schools, but another 15-year-old with no training in how to teach anything isn't going to help, nor is sending students to a resource center that is staffed with paraprofessionals who also don't have education degrees or enough experience in the education space to be of much help at all. If a student is two grade levels behind in their reading proficiency for multiple years in a row, it is bound to have a trickle-down effect into other areas of his or her education and life. Well, yeah, I mean, if they can't read the textbook or can't define half the words in it, I mean, where do you go from there? And in my mind, it all comes back to you need to float this person to 65 or it's going to generate phone calls. Yeah. Guess what? It generates a whole lot more very disturbing shit than a phone call. So on the heels of that, let's talk a little bit about where we rank in math and science. We're falling in math literacy rankings, too. According to Will McAvoy, we were number 27 in 2012. As of 2020, guess what? We were number 29 Math is supposed to teach you how to think. And that's why we see a continuous parade of memes that say things like day 3,411 in a row where I didn't use algebra. Well, no. If you have ever adjusted a recipe to feed four people instead of two, guess what? You used algebra. 
So yes, you use algebra all the time, but you're not doing algebraic equations all the time. It's not about learning how to solve equations. It's about learning how to think, or at least it should be. But the reason why people think about it that way is because the intent of teaching math and the approach that we take to teaching it in the U.S. never find their way to each other. The intention is supposed to be to teach you how to think. But with the advent of standardized testing and everyone teaching to the test, now it's about learning how to solve equations. And seriously, who gives a fuck? Okay? <laughs> And, you know, I'm not, not to sound callous or anything, because I know there are going to be people out there that say, well, you know what, guess what? I use those fucking equations in my work every day. And yes, I know. There are plenty of areas, especially in terms of science and in point of fact, mathematics, statistics, all of these things that absolutely positively require those kinds of skills. So I don't want to downplay it. But for the average person sitting in that classroom, the real intent here is not for them to get a job at NASA. It's to simply teach them how to think critically about certain concepts. And understanding math helps you tremendously in that area until you find yourself in the midst of a system that only cares whether or not you can pass a test. Yeah. And then it's just plain pointless. Classes here often focus on formulas and procedures rather than teaching students to think creatively about solving complex problems involving all sorts of mathematics, experts said. That makes it harder for students to compete globally, be it on an international exam or in colleges and careers that value sophisticated thinking and data science. In other words, we place far too heavy an emphasis on memorizing how to solve equations and place far too little emphasis on critical thinking. Even word problems are starting to take a backseat to rote memorization and don't even get me started on Common Core because that is what that method is rotten to. It's common, thought-removing, ridiculously roundabout, thought-salad-generating core. I think it's interesting how the numbers line up in Common Core methodology, but the intricacies and multiple applications of these problem-solving methods are never, ever ever explored in most American public school classrooms. They teach these long way round methods of solving math problems without teaching kids anything about how you can practically apply those problem solving methods to real life situations. I can see what Common Core is supposed to accomplish, but like anything else we try to teach in this country, it falls by the way in terms of why students should learn it. Now I find as a driver education professional, that students learn maneuvers and techniques faster and more thoroughly when I not only present the how-to, but also the why you should as part of the process. Teaching a student to turn their wheels to the left when parking uphill with a curb is easy to forget if you just present the concept and expect them to remember. When you teach them why they're doing it, I find that retention is way higher. It's the same with teaching math. You can't just teach kids formulas and give them cheat sheets so they can pass a test. They learn nothing that way. You have to give them practical reasons and applications for what they're learning so that they can associate what they're learning with something of actual value. And the experts agree. Most American high schools teach Algebra 1 in 9th grade, Geometry in 10th grade, and Algebra 2 in 11th grade, something Joe Bowler, a mathematics professor at Stanford University, calls the Geometry Sandwich. She says other countries teach three straight years of integrated math, 1, 2, and 3, in which concepts of algebra, geometry, probability, statistics, and data science are taught together, allowing students to take deep dives into complex problems. 
In higher performing countries, statistics or data science, the computer-based analysis of data often coupled with coding is a larger part of the math curriculum. Most American classes focus on teaching rote procedures. All it produces, the way we do it here, is bored students who graduate barely able to calculate multiplication tables in their heads or even come up with something as simple as what is 20% of my restaurant check. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is fucking pathetic. Just for a quick compare and contrast, Estonia ranks first among European countries in mathematics as well as reading and science. Why? Because they offer high-quality early childhood education to all. They maintain small class sizes, which means that they also hire more teachers. And with far less emphasis on standardized teaching, teachers there are free to actually teach concepts, not simply how to pass a test. Estonia also teaches computer programming at all grade levels, a strategy started in the upper grades in the late 90s and extended to elementary schools around 2012. There's that practical application that's lacking here, and I can think of no more versatile way of presenting mathematical concepts than this at classroom level. Oh, and by the way, Common Core doesn't work. The numbers haven't budged in more than a decade, proving beyond a doubt that you can't swap out one system that neglects critical thinking for another that neglects it with extra unnecessary steps thrown in. And if you don't understand math, it's impossible to understand science. So of course we suck at that too. Of course, the overlying problem with this one is the cancer of evangelical influence that fights the execution of meaningful, honest, and fact-based science education around every turn. But there are problems here that manifest long before the creationist nutters ever take a breath to whine and complain, most of which fall into the same trap as everything else that happens in the American classroom. Even with labs and hands-on experiments as part of the curriculum, students learn precious little in science classes that have practical applications or that prepare them to tackle more complex concepts at higher levels of education. And the worst part is that they're not expected to. Unless a student is looking to enter a scientific field in their professional life, they have no motivation to learn anything taught in the classroom, and the curriculum is once again written in a way that caters to the lowest common denominator without any thought of challenge or promoting critical thought. Most high school science classes map out experiments and procedures in a way that provides the student with the expected outcome without independent application of the scientific method. What is the point of engaging in experimentation if you're told going in what the outcome is going to be? It makes no fucking sense. As for our science rankings, they haven't changed much. They're about the same with a disparity of just a few percentage points between studies. So that's the 2022 update to the education problem. Now let's talk about life expectancy. The United States ranks near the bottom in life expectancy when compared to other OECD countries. We are currently 26th out of 35 with an average life expectancy of 79 years. Now, when I was 17, that didn't seem so bad. At 50, I kind of feel like I should be able to expect better. But here's the problem. Our healthcare system sucks. One out of two people in the U.S. currently have medical debt. Why? Because our insurance doesn't cover medical care 100%, and in some cases, it doesn't cover it at all. And if you want health insurance, you either need to buy it or get it from your employer and sacrifice an insane chunk of your paycheck to have it. Most plans cover major medical expenses to the tune of about 80%. So if your hospital state opts $150,000, and this is a very, very easy number to hit, you're on the hook for 30 
$30,000. You, the individual, are on the hook for $30,000. If you make $15 an hour and work full time, that right there is more than a year's pay. And you'll keep paying your premiums and co-pays on your medical insurance while trying to figure out how to pay your existing medical debt. And the interest on that debt accrues at a rate that defies the term usury. When I was younger, doctors ordered and recommended tests and treatments that were needed. Today, it's like choosing option packages on a luxury car. The term reasonable and customary no longer applies. Medical practices are for profit and they will prescribe drugs and order tests and procedures that you flat out don't need. Why? Because they get incentives and kickbacks for prescribing specific drugs or making diagnoses that necessitate the purchase or rental of expensive medical equipment to treat. And if your insurance doesn't cover it all, here we go straight back to square one. So how do Americans deal with the problem of high co-pays, subpar coverage, and the inability to pay for things like prescription meds? Well, a lot of us just don't go to the doctor. We wait until we're too sick to cope, and then we head to the ER, which is sometimes five to ten times more expensive than seeing a doctor. We call ride shares to get us to the ER when we really need an ambulance because we just don't have the five grand sitting around that we would need to pay for that ambulance. Then it takes forever for insurance companies to approve necessary services and treatments, and in the meantime, the patient gets sicker. And if the patient doesn't have insurance or their plan doesn't cover the treatment they need, they literally physically die over an inability to pay. God damn bless America. Because clearly money is more important than human life, even to a hospital or medical network whose profit margins can often be measured in seven, eight, and ten figures or more annually. One dose of Tylenol with codeine administered by a CNA in a hospital can carry a price tag of $50 to $100. One fucking dose of Tylenol with codeine. And if you have cancer, your treatment costs before insurance can reach into the seven-figure category in a matter of months. Mm. Oh, and lots of American healthcare plans carry a million-dollar lifetime benefit. What happens when that runs out and you still need chemo or dialysis or oxygen or just a fucking rescue inhaler? And don't get me started on how hospitals can deny vital services like abortion because they're run by religious organizations. Mm. None of these things are issues in countries with socialized medicine, and many of the horror stories people are told about healthcare in socialized medical systems are nothing but propaganda. The U.S. is one of a tiny number of countries on earth that expected citizens to foot the bill for every tiny thing they do to maintain their health. Greatest country on earth, my ass. Now let's talk about how we treat our workforce. To put it plain and simple, American employers suck. And I say this as an American employer. I have employees, and for what I've learned as an employer about my responsibilities as an employer, I can tell you one thing for certain. I've been royally fucked over more than once as an employee. Why? Mostly because I didn't know all of my rights as well as I thought I did, and it is way too easy for employers in this country to hide from their responsibilities. They rely on their subordinates, being ignorant of their rights, and most are, even with that huge poster on the wall that's supposed to be displayed prominently and yet quite often gets displayed in broom closets and unused office spaces so that they don't attract attention. The next problem here is that most U.S. employers also pay 
their employees shit. And guess what? The federal government lets them. Think about this for a moment, people. In the year 2022, the U.S. federal minimum wage is currently $7.25 per hour for non-tipped employees and $2.13 per hour for tipped employees. That's $15,000 a year for a non-tipped worker. Most individual states set their own minimum wage considerably higher, but our federal government is still living in the 1980s in terms of what they consider a minimally livable wage. Also, the U.S. has no legal requirement to periodically review and, if necessary, adjust its minimum wage. That means that 10 years from now, it could still be the same. Now, someone can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that the last president that did anything with the minimum wage was Bill Clinton. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure. This is completely off the top of my head. I'm just thinking about this right now as I'm talking, but I'm pretty sure that it was him who raised it that high. I think it was in the $5 range before he raised it. Yeah. And could still be if he didn't take action on it. Now, we talked briefly about how employers fuck over their uh, their employees but you know what there's a lot of legal shit that fucks over the american worker every single day too according to the washington post the united states and mexico are the only countries that don't require any advance notice for individual firings the u.s ranks at the bottom for employee protection even when mass layoffs are taken into consideration as well despite the 1988 worker adjustment and retraining notification or warn acts requirement that employers give notice 60 days before major plant closings or layoffs. I was warned twice. Yeah. Two separate call centers. They had to enact the WARN Act because they were putting about 350 people all at once out of work. But that's the only time that I ever got advance notice about a job ending. The United States spends less of its economic wealth on active efforts to help people or who are at risk of becoming unemployed than almost any other country. And they leave the unemployed in the dust. Oh, and you can only get unemployment if you weren't fired for cause, which is something that a lot of employers will claim as a means of not extending unemployment benefits when they fire someone for other reasons, like that they can't afford the employee anymore, or they decide they don't like you for whatever reason. Now, employment at will covers this, but if you're simply laid off, regardless of the reason, they have to pay into UI. Um, That's unemployment insurance. If they say they fired you for cause, it starts a whole process that can leave the worker without any semblance of income for weeks or even months on end. And it happened to me. I had to chase unemployment from one of my uh, previous employers. And uh, as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. But the thing is, even if the person wins, and I did, they could be behind on bills and their credit could be taking a huge hit. There are all kinds of bad things that can happen. Yeah. Now, let's say that you're lucky enough to get UI benefits without a fight from your employer. U.S. unemployment benefits provide less support in the first year of unemployment than those in any other country. The maximum length of benefits in a typical U.S. state is 26 weeks, just about six months. This is shorter than in all but a small handful of countries. In some states, the maximum benefit length is as little as 12 weeks, three months, and you're on your own. You can file for federal unemployment benefits after that, but that will only cover you for another six months. Once that runs out, you are 100% fucked if you haven't found something else. I find it kind of rage-inducing that it took a fucking pandemic to get people the help that they needed on unemployment. And 
guess what? Now things have reverted back to the old way of doing things with a few lingering benefits extended to workers that relate to COVID still on the books. Now, let's say that you have a job. Now, let's say you actually have a job and unemployment isn't an issue for you, at least not right now. Guess what? You're probably overworked and underpaid in ways that are laughable throughout most of the developed world. Most Americans find themselves too busy making a living to actually have a life. Even if they have the money to spend, they are so endlessly tethered to their jobs that they have no time or opportunity to enjoy the fruits of their labor. And the bigger problem is that most American households cannot survive on a single income. In 70% of American homes, all adults living in the home work and contribute to expenses. And even then, many find themselves living paycheck to paycheck, barely paying the rent or living house poor. The U.S. is the only country in the Americas without a national paid parental leave benefit. The average is over 12 weeks of paid leave anywhere other than Europe. What's the average in Europe? 20 weeks paid. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is the only industrialized nation whose government does not mandate giving new parents the option to take leave. Here, it's up to the employer, and most don't want to deprive their shareholders and CEOs of the money it would take to make it happen. And... No one is forcing them to, so they don't. Mm. And most industrialized countries also set caps on the length of a work week. Guess who doesn't? An employer can work you for as many fucking hours as they want in this country, and it's completely legal when you're over 18. It is completely legal for them to subject you to mandatory overtime, to have you working double and sometimes triple shifts, there are labor laws that comprise things like breaks after certain amounts of time. But when you've been working 36 hours straight, a half an hour lunch break every six hours is not going to be enough. It just isn't. And those things do happen, especially in medical professions in lots of different areas of medicine. That's not an exaggeration at all. So in the United States, full-time employed females work approximately 8.3 hour work days. Full-time employed males work an average of 9.09 hours per workday. U.S. workers work an average of 1,767 hours per year versus an OECD country averaging about 1,687. So less than 100 hours more, but still, it's more. And when you break it down into real numbers, that comes out to 435 more hours per year than workers in Germany, 400 more hours per year than workers in the UK, 365 more hours per year than workers in France, and 169 more hours per year than workers in Japan. The productivity per American worker has increased 430% since 1950. Look at it this way. Today, the average American worker is responsible for the work that used to be done by four people. And to put it another way, an American worker in 1950 only had to put in 10 hours a week to have the same standard of living someone working 40 hours a week does now. No wonder American families in the 50s and earlier could have five people in a household and be able to live on one income. That one job was the equivalent of four full-time incomes today. And just to add insult to injury, here's what we get in America in exchange for all that hard work when compared to other countries. There is not a federal law requiring paid sick days in the United States. The government refuses, refuses to protect our income if we get sick. 
We are the only industrialized country in the world that has no legally mandated annual leave. In every industrialized country except Canada, the U.S., and Japan, workers get at least 20 paid vacation days on average. In France and Finland, they get 30, an entire month off paid every single year. The average here is 13 days. And some workers have to work for years at the same job to get to that. Most employers start you off with a week for at least the first two years. And some of those employers don't even offer major holidays off. One of my employers made it mandatory to use my own PTO when they closed the business due to inclement weather. They closed down, told me not to come to work, and then debited eight hours of paid time off. Wow. Yes. And I don't think I even need to tell you which one of the employers that was. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm sure you know. Yeah. You say, I don't want to say their name out loud because, you know, that that can cause some problems. Yeah. Let's just say I weeded them out of my life. Mm -hmm. That should tell everybody what they need to know. Now, let's look at the three things that Will McAvoy cited as the only three areas where we top the list. And these still apply. These still apply a decade later. Let's talk first about the number of incarcerated citizens per capita in this country. The United States accounts for only 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. Talk about the home of the free. Our prison systems are also often inhumane. We place higher standards on the accommodations in animal shelters than we do on those in our prisons. An alarming number of prisons, particularly in the South, don't even have air conditioning. At least 14 states lack universal air conditioning in their prisons. Florida offers air-conditioned housing units in only 40% of its state-run correctional institutions, and Texas provides it in only 30%, which doesn't surprise me in the least. No. In places where the summer temperature can exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit, buildings keep both offenders and the heat trapped inside. Prisoners on medications to manage blood pressure or mental health problems are especially prone to heat-related illnesses, as are those with asthma. Prisoners have died during heat waves, prompting lawsuits against the states that held them. And we could get into a whole conversation about prison food, but we'll just let this statistic speak for itself. A CDC study found that between 1998 and 2014, inmates suffered from a food-related illness 6.4 times more than the general population. That doesn't happen when the food is fresh, properly stored, and adequately prepared. And we also have this lovely practice in our country of serving inmates something called the loaf if they misbehave. That's right. We feed our prisoners food that is literally on the same quality level as high-end dog food as a form of punishment when they step out of line. So what is this loaf? It has its own fucking Wikipedia, okay? Yeah. So from the Neutral Loaf Wikipedia entry, there are many recipes that include a range of food from vegetables, fruit, meat, and bread, or other grains. The ingredients are blended and baked into a solid loaf. In one version, it is made from a mixture of ingredients that include ground beef, vegetables, beans, and breadcrumbs. Other versions include mechanically separated poultry and a, quote, dairy blend. And they don't expound on that. 
you know, we could go on and on and even get into a conversation about how most prisons are privatized, that they're run in cooperation with the states where they exist, but they're owned by private corporations who are tasked with making a profit. You think slavery is over? Mm-mm. Oh, absolutely not. We Again, I could do an entire episode just on this, but we're already going long. And there are so many details that I could pull out about this that I'm just going to leave that little thought in your head. Most prisons out there in the United States have some kind of corporate backing or ownership. And these corporations exist to make money. And do a little bit of Googling sometime on how they actually turn those profits. And a lot of it involves inmate labor, which, and in a lot of cases, they're paid nothing or next to nothing. And that, my friends, is where slavery is gone. It's just not out there for the general public to look at and observe. Now it's behind barbed wire walls and bars, but it still exists. And it's still a problem. It is an epidemic problem within our prison system. And another really major and infuriating problem that we have in this country when it comes to how many of our people are incarcerated is something that many people think is just a principle that applies to biblical times, but which is actually alive and well in America today. And that is the concept of debtor's prison. Yes, part of the incarceration problem in this country has directly to do with locking people up because they can't pay, among other things, traffic tickets. There are people sitting in jail right now because they couldn't pay a traffic ticket. And just to give you a little bit of background on that, I'm going to read just a short excerpt from an article that I found on this. So here's just one story. In January of 2015, John J. Marcus III of Plum, I think this is Pennsylvania, it's Pennsylvania, was caught driving without a license, registration, or a valid inspection and fined almost $500. Marcus and his parents, with whom he lives, are all unemployed and on disability. In February of 2016, a constable arrested Marcus and took him before a district judge. Marcus said that he was not offered a lawyer. He said the magistrate gave him two hours to settle his debt. Two hours. When he couldn't pay, he was put into the Allegheny Jail where he spent five days. And let me tell you something, five days is nothing. There are people who sit in jail for weeks, months, and even years because they don't have the means to pay a paltry fine. And my question is, when the fuck are they supposed to come up with the money when you've got them sitting in jail and they can't make any? And there's no answer to that question. That's the sick part about this. There is no answer to that question. We put people in jail over parking tickets and other fines. It is absolutely disgusting that something like that happens in the home of the free. Absolutely disgusting. And again, I could expound on this one for hours too, but just chew on that for a little while, people. There are people in this country sitting in jail right now because they got caught speeding and couldn't pay the fine. Or they had an expired registration sticker and couldn't pay the fine. Or they did something that resulted in some other kind of fine that they couldn't pay because they don't have a job. Or that they're homeless. Or there are other circumstances that keep them from paying that debt. And they are literally right now in many places in America 
sitting and rotting in debtor's prison and will be there for a long time unless someone comes to their rescue and not only pays those fines, but all of the interest that accrues on those fines while they sit in jail. Again, goddamn bless America. And I'm going to I'm going to breeze right past this one because, um, you know, this is what the show is about. Yeah. He talks about the number of people who believe that angels are real. So, again, I'm not going to really belabor this point because, you know, well, we talk about this shit every week. Yeah. So every country has a religion problem. Any every country that has religion in it has a religion problem. But there is nowhere in the world that perpetuates religious delusions of all description the way that we do. We encourage it, and we also tolerate way, way more from people of especially one specific religion mm. than we ever should. And again, as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that for now. We've got another 112 episodes on that if you, uh, <laughs> you want to uh, take a deep dive. So I'm going to breeze right past that part of it because we all know what kind of a problem that is. And I'm going to spend just a couple minutes on the subject of defense spending. Was Will McAvoy off by a little by stating that we spend more than the next 26 countries combined? I don't know. We're talking about a show on HBO, so who knows how many other countries with minuscule budgets they may have researched to qualify that statement. The reality that I was able to determine in my research, though, is bad enough. According to the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, and echoed in a variety of other sources, we currently spend more than the next nine countries. And you know what? I'm sorry. That's bad enough. China is our closest competitor on that list, and they topped out around $300 billion in 2021. The rest of the countries on, in that pile don't even come close to the nearly $800 billion that we spent last year. And that number varies depending on various sources and the areas of spending that are attributed to defense spending. So, I mean, my, my first question here is where the fuck is all this money going? Because it's not going to soldiers. It takes a private in the U.S. Army three years to achieve a whopping 24 k a year salary. Over the course of three years, their monthly pay increases by $500. $500 over the course of three years. For corporals, it's an increase of just $400 in the same amount of time. The average sergeant makes about eight grand a month, but most military personnel never rise to that rank and never earn anywhere near that much. All of that money goes into the development and manufacturing of weaponry of all description, from guns to tanks to stealth bombers and so on. To be fair, there are other avenues for earning income, and some soldiers actually do pretty well with programs like the Montgomery GI Bill and other programs that help with education, housing, and more. But I'm sorry, a driving instructor working less than full-time is capable of pulling down 24 k a year. We funnel the majority of the money that we spend on defense into big, scary machines and leave the people who operate them in the dust. And that's while they're in active service and for long after they're discharged. We leave them completely in the dust. And again, we could have an hours-long conversation on how we treat our vets. It's also pretty disgusting. The military takes everything that they can from some people. We're not even talking about the ones that die. We're talking about the ones that get wounded and have their quality of life ripped out from under them. And the levels of support that some of these people get from their government for the services that they provided is disgusting. And I'm going to leave that right there 
because I'll trail off on it so far that I'm still going to be sitting here at one o'clock in the morning and we don't need that. Um, (laughs) So just to put a period on all this, America is not now, nor has it ever been, nor does it have a snowball's chance in hell at ever being the greatest anything anywhere. We treat our people like shit. We keep people in debt forever, paying off college degrees that never even guarantee them an income. And most college degrees, I'm sorry, are bullshit in or out of Bible college. We incarcerate people for not being able to pay traffic tickets or fines levied against them for other misdemeanor offenses until they pay the debt while simultaneously making it impossible to work for the money to pay the debt. We work our labor force quite literally to death. And if that isn't enough, we can also add one more thing to the list of things we're number one in the world for, and that is gun violence. So far this year, there's been just over one school shooting per week in this country, and an alarming number of them are committed using legally obtained, quote-unquote, Second Amendment protected firearms. You want to do something meaningful, pro-lifers? Start speaking out against gun violence. Fuck your thoughts and prayers. They're as useless as the rest of your rhetoric. Put your money where your mouths are and have the balls to stand up for the lives of the children that were taken in Texas last week. Do that instead of standing behind idiots who know even less about the Constitution than you do, who are fighting as hard for their imaginary right to keep and bear arms as you are to control women, even to the point of fucking killing them, denying them the basic and foundational right to do whatever the fuck they want with their own bodies. There is one way to get America on track for greatness, at least as long as we still have a shred of democracy at work here, and that is to start giving the right people the power to make vital decisions about things like health care and workers' rights and gun laws and sound interpretations of the Constitution that don't kowtow to corporations, especially hate-mongering evangelical-led corporations. Oh, here we go again with the voting. Yes, you're absolutely fucking right. Here we go again with voting. I'm once again telling you to get up off your ass and vote. Primaries are going on right now. If rational, clear-thinking, intelligent people go to those polls, we can see the tides begin to turn. Maybe not in one election, but within a generation for sure. If we stop allowing corrupt politicians the opportunity to influence the things that we talked about tonight and start electing people who place a high enough value on human life to just raise the fucking minimum wage once in a while, we'll definitely be doing better than we are now. The greatest country on earth shouldn't have people becoming homeless because they lost three months pay during a pandemic. We shouldn't have people living one pink slip away from losing their health insurance. And we sure as shit shouldn't have people dying of treatable illnesses because they can't afford to be made well. No country that calls itself the greatest anything could possibly allow these things to happen to their people. And yet they happen every fucking day in the United States. Every day, someone loses a father, a mother, a spouse, or a child to a healthcare system that dictates that only those who can afford to pay to live actually make it out alive. No country that calls itself the greatest can have an education system that doesn't even go as far as teaching someone how to sign their own fucking name on a document anymore. And no country can call itself the greatest when it has workers working full-time and beyond full-time hours and still qualifying for public assistance because their employers are allowed to pay them as little as $7.25 an hour. That, our evangelical and fence-sitting listeners, is why 
we're not the greatest. Your pastors are lying to you. Your favorite right-wing politicians are lying to you, and you need to understand that. You're sitting in a room that's burning around you and being told everything is fine. Everything is not fine. Look at how we do things here in contrast to how those same things are done in other parts of the world and start waking up to the fact that you're being sold a bill of goods with this nonsensical greatest country doctrine that the evangelical right keeps trying to sell you. And when you do, vote out the liars and start demanding the greatness that they promised you by voting in people who at least want to deliver it. Because if we can steer American politics away from the right and keep moving in a direction that at least sets us up for greatness, it won't be just us, but our entire country that finally gets and stays unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.